There are uh, a number of stories in the Pali Canon where within it somebody comes and in one form or other asks the Buddha, what would be good to do? Um, you know, in phrase something like, what if I do it? will be for my welfare and my happiness and my long-term benefit? It's a fair question to ask a spiritual teacher. And, you know, the Buddha always has something to say to that. Um, but the, there's a certain movement of mind uh, within us that has a sense that this could be good. <laughs> Um, even though it may be unusual or it may be sometimes difficult to sit or practice, there's a sense that it, um, it's good in some way, even if we can't articulate that, that we don't come up with that question. And often the people who ask this question are lay people. They're not uh, necessarily the monastics, although I think... Some monastics maybe ask that. And so these are people who haven't necessarily, you know, they haven't given up their home and uh, ordained and agreed to live their life in that way. And yet they still want to know, you know, what is it that would be for my, for my benefit? And the Buddha... Um, he doesn't say to them, well, the only way to really do this is if you ordain. Um, maybe he said that once, like to his son. But um, for the most part, he has various uh, advice for people that's um, because of his ability to, to see and sense other people very well, it tends to be appropriate to their circumstances. So... In that spirit, this is the spirit in which I want to offer a list that was put together um, by the Vipassana teacher named Gregory Kramer. Um, he's been teaching for a long time. And he, I really admire him as a teacher because he makes the path very explicit through his, just the way that he is you know, his presence and his um, clear mindfulness and his uh, discernment about uh, how to approach situations, it's clear that he has made the teachings uh, into something that he does in his whole life, not just on the cushion, clearly. And so he put together, actually, because this is meaningful for him, he put together a list called the Five Tenets, of whole life practice. And I wanted to expound on those a bit. So this is the spirit of, you know, what if, what if you decided that the benefits from meditation are really good and you wanted to figure out how to bring them into every aspect of your life? It's a common, another common question that's maybe more common at centers like this is, how do I apply this? You know, I love sitting and I come to this group 
but how do I make that real in the rest of my life with my crazy neighbor and my health issues or my work or something? Um, so I really like this list that he offered. And you can kind of maybe as you listen, see which parts uh, draw you. It's not meant to be this is the requirement. It's more, how does this resonate? And, you know, what might be able to be offered from somebody who has really made this practice into their whole life? So the first tenet is um, the Dhamma is the foundation. And you might say, well, that's almost not needed to be stated because I'm the point is to make the Dhamma into one's whole life. But the um, having a foundation, really acknowledging that if we want to live this path, um, the Dhamma is the kind of undergird to the whole thing, is helpful to name. And you know, what would that really mean in terms of what we do? Well, we would, we would sit, of course, but also uh, study the teachings so that we know what it is that they say and listen to talks and talk with Dharma friends. There's so many different uh, dimensions that can be brought in, in terms of, um, of this. It's also something that's useful to make explicit because it's not that we don't have a foundation to our life. Some people will come, will arrive at a center like this claiming that they've lost their ground or that they don't have ground. And okay, that might be true, but for many of us, um, we have a foundation, and a lot of it has to do with what we were offered as we were growing up. You know, we were told, this is how you should live, or this is the, um, the best way to structure your life. Get an education, get a job, have a family, do your best to stay healthy, and that will be a happy life for you. That's a common message for some people, other people get that message and rebel against it. And so their foundation is, I'm not going to do that. It's still a foundation. Um, you've still chosen something. And if we go a little deeper at some level, what we're basically doing is trying hard to um, uh, protect this one in a world. You know, there's an external world. There's me. I should make a livelihood, I should uh, gather up some pleasures, I should avoid pain in some way or other. We may be more or less successful at that, we may have um, better or you know, more accurate or less accurate ideas about what that entails, uh, and therefore you know, meet the consequences of that. But essentially we have some foundation, and we may not have really looked at that very carefully. What is the foundation? Why are you doing what you're doing? What makes you tick? What makes you do what you do? Why do you get out, out of bed in the morning? It's not to go to your job. That might be the first surface level, but there's something else. So we should look at that. And the, um, this first tenet is saying that we're going to commit to make the Dhamma that. You know, we're going to live our life around um, the teachings that are, are the path to the kind of freedom that the Buddha described, which is freedom from um, things that we're clinging to, essentially. So it's interesting, maybe, to, um, if you haven't ever done it, to reflect on what the foundation of your life is, or has been, or 
how it's changed or those kinds of things. And if you're interested in, you know, taking the Dhamma all the way down to that basic level. So if we did that, then the second tenet is all the teachings are practices. I love this one because um, we're such a head-oriented society. Um, We can, and we've been trained that when we learn things, like uh, in some kind of a classroom setting or something like this, where there's one person talking and some others listening, um, it's something about we need to memorize this, learn this, conceptualize this, get this right, get it together, um, etc. What if that's not actually the point of these teachings, is that they're meant to be practiced, they're meant to be done? One of my favorite examples is that um, there's a teaching where uh, the Buddha is talking about how we relate to the different parts of ourselves that we tend to identify with, one of them being our body, a big one, (laughs) being our body. And so he's talking about non-identification with the body, and he says, just notice for yourself, as sort of a support for his argument, he says, one cannot have it of form, form being the body, one cannot have it of form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. And then he gives some other examples about our, our feelings and our thoughts and these kinds of things, other categories, perceptions. And so we can read that and say, well, of course, you know, that, that makes sense to me. Um, but that's not exactly the same as practicing this. So we don't have to do a long, literal long-term practice, although we could, but um, we could very directly reflect, I mean, actually sit and um, try. Make your hair grow. Can you do it? Two inches taller, five years younger, We're meant to try. (laughs) And then you realize, oh, no, I cannot have it of my body. Let my body be thus. Let my body not be thus. And yet what do we do all day? We push it around. We feed it certain things. We exercise it, all because we have this idea that doing all of that is going to make it into what we need it to be. Um, We should look at this very carefully. How much of that this physical being that we, this physical interface that we have is really under our control and how much is not. It can be shocking. This, we're meant to actually experience that. So all the teachings are practices. So if you catch yourself reading things and saying, yep, I agree, or nope, I don't agree, you might try something a little more direct. One consideration uh, that I'll just add to this is that in, um, in early Buddhism, you know, which is what the teachings that came to us, the earliest ones, uh, the teachings are not really set up as a complete philosophy or theory of reality. If you look at Buddhist history, um, the later and later you get um, from the time of the Buddha, the more, I guess, 
I don't know what happened, but there was there's more and more of a complete philosophy. And you're told this is how reality is, this is how the laws of the universe work, this is a complete understanding of everything. Uh, you don't see that, actually, in the early tradition, not because um, the Buddha didn't know that, um, but it, because it wasn't his aim. Uh, the Buddha says very clearly, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And there are teachings where somebody goes off and, and asks him a lot of questions about a bunch of stuff, sort of philosophical stuff, and he actually interrupts him and says, this is not, he says, I, I haven't declared these things. Uh, these are not fundamental to what I teach. You know, it just doesn't matter. The origin of the ocean is just not important to me. That was a big deal. That was a big deal in Indian philosophy. What's the origin of the ocean? Just so you know. So, um, it's not a tidy system. These early teachings don't present a tidy system to us. They present um, facets of practice, if you will. So in this realm, like say the realm of where we tend to get identified, well, then the practice you can do is to consider whether or not you can make your body be a certain way or make your perceptions be a certain way or make your consciousness be a certain way. Um, and in another situation, it might be better for you to look at conditionality, um, look at how the different factors come together and see if you can see this 12-fold links of dependent origination, which are not a theory of the universe. <laughs> um, so, in fact, we're warned that having a very deep, a very tidy conceptual understanding is uh, a distraction from the practice. The conceptualization is always a little bit of a veil over direct experience. So we have to be a little bit careful. So there is value. Of course, as you know, I'm, I'm, I teach sutta study here. So there is value in learning um, what the suttas say, what the uh, different lists are, how they link together, um, how the path is organized. There is a pretty well laid out path through the early teachings. But not to confuse that with um, actual understanding that the Buddha was pointing at. It's the understanding that frees us from suffering. Venerable Inalio um, calls the early teachings spotlights on reality, which I like very much. So all the teachings are practices. Third tenet, nothing is left out. Also a good one, because it means that no part of our life is irrelevant or exempt from the Dharma. Satipatthana Sutta, um, the most detailed instructions on mindfulness that are given, uh, advises mindfulness and daily activities, and it gives some suggestions about things we should know, like we should be mindful of, like when we're extending and retracting our limbs, when we're standing and sitting and walking and lying down, when we're speaking, when we're being silent, and it includes when we're urinating and when we're defecating. So is there anything you think might be outside of the realm of the Dharma even these ancient wisdom teachings include lines like that. So everything counts. Um, but there is a, this is actually a deeper tenet than we might think. You know, we might say, all right, so I'll just try to be continuously aware all day. That's, that's always the instruction, and it's very hard, and so forth. But that's only the surface level. Uh, ignorance, the fundamental cause of suffering is um, 
it functions, you know, how does it function? It functions to block our awareness of the teachings in certain areas. That's what it does. Um, ignorance is a, a not seeing of reality in certain areas of our life. That's its role. And so it means that we don't know what we don't know. We don't actually know all the areas that we might be leaving the teachings out of our life. We may think that we're seeing everything, but most likely not at this point. So part of the practice, you know, part of mindfulness practice, is learning to root out these unseen areas and, and shine the light in there. And you will, you will be very humbled if you do a long-term practice at how more things keep getting revealed. And you think, okay, I've, I've got it. I, I've got the picture now. <laughs> That's a danger sign when you, when you say, now I've got it. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein says he has had the insight, now I've got it, about 10,000 times. <laughs> He's practiced for about 50 years. So, um, so we have to, you know, we have to be a little humble about this. I once went to a spirit rock day long uh, when I was fairly early in my practice. And I was paired up with uh, another person in, in a dyad that we were doing. And she was a, a long-term meditator. Um, the, the day long was about um, wise communication or skillful speech, something like that. And so she was this long-term meditator. And she said that she was at the day long because she had recently been um, snapping at her partner and getting angry a lot and just having all this anger in her daily life. And she didn't know where it was coming from. And she, um, you know, it was just sort of suddenly started happening. She'd never been an angry person. And she was trying to get a few tools to, to work with that. And so I don't know that I totally understood at the time um, that that's very normal in practice is that we go along for a while, we think we know who we are, we think we know what's going on, and then the practice will open something new, and we suddenly find that we're working with some new layer. It's usually how we say it in our practice. Um, you know, it may or may not happen, it may take maybe mild or maybe more severe, like in this woman's case. But this is just how it goes, and so, you know, mindfulness reveals deeper and deeper layers. Um, so, when we say nothing is left out, what we're committing to is continuing to work with whatever's coming fresh and, and saying, okay, if something new is coming, I might have to go learn some new practices to, to learn how to do this. That's how we eventually become whole and complete. All right, number four. All teachings can be experienced here and now. This one is actually really important to remember because it's a tendency of our mind to slip into futuristic thinking, especially when you hear these teachings. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, sometime later when I have concentration, when I have time to go on retreats, when I've, you know, figured out this next phase of my life, then I'm really going to understand or something like that. Um, but the... the um, this tenet reminds us that actually all the teachings are something that can be experienced now. There isn't any other time you can experience anything, actually. It's really only now, right here, right now. Um, there's, nothing, there's nothing coming in the future that's necessary to think about. When it comes, you'll experience it. 
And if it isn't here yet, then you should be experiencing what is here. Utejaniya offers a series of wisdom questions that we can ask ourselves as we go throughout our day. And um, they include, am I aware and what am I aware of? It sounds kind of boring, but this is actually great practice. You know, at any given moment, am I aware at this moment? And if so, what am I aware of? Just that really brings the mindfulness right back into the here and now. It may not be anything glamorous, you know, I'm aware of my toe. I'm aware of that red car in front of me, something like that. Um, but this is it. You know, if that's what we're aware of, that's the experience. That's where the path is found. I have a teaching reminder still pinned up at home that says, how about right now? <laughs> and that's for my mind's tendency to say, tomorrow I'm going to be doing such and such, and next week I have to remember to prepare for it. And it's like, how about right now? Oh, right. <laughs> right now, there's this. You know, there's this sensation. So it's interesting, right? Um, words, I mean, some of the words of the teachings I understand make this difficult. So words like dispassion, cessation, Nibbana, emptiness, it's kind of like, okay, whatever that is, that's going to be sometime in the future. Um, but actually, um, each of these can be experienced to some degree right now. And the only time you could ever experience them is right now. So if you're thinking about emptiness, the degree, the question is, to what degree at this moment are you feeling non-identified? To what degree at this moment are you feeling free of your past and free of yourself? That's it. You can feel that for this moment. How is it? That is your experience of emptiness. Right now, it will evolve. There's no other time. And the fifth tenet, the teachings are to be let in fully. That's maybe the most challenging one, almost. This is an area where clinging and craving are exerting influence. One thing we do is that we, you know, we set boundaries and we draw perimeters around things. We're willing to go this far with the teachings, but no farther. You know, I'll give up this amount, but not that. Or I'll modify my behavior at home, but not at work. I, mean, I have to keep my job, right? Something like that. So this relates to number two, which was nothing is left out. So there's questions of to what degree we're willing. Um, but another thing that we do is that we hold back on how deeply we're willing to experience certain aspects of the teachings. And this becomes clearer and clearer as we go along. Um, how much emptiness can you take? How much inconstancy? How much dukkha, how much awareness of your own death do you let in? These are all very fundamental and deep aspects of the practice that uh, are meant to, those are the ones that transform us. But we find mm, this far and not, not any farther. So it's important to realize that this is okay. <laughs> this is okay. We're not fully awake precisely because we don't fully let in the teachings. They go together. So we are where we are. 
But it is important to feel that edge, you know, to feel where is it that I start feeling a little bit of resistance or I start saying, well, <laughs> where's that magazine I was reading? <laughs> you know, the mind is like, it's really interesting to sort of point the mind gently, point the mind at the, the, the deeper teachings or the things that we aren't so sure about and then watch what it does. Watch how it kind of veers away to the side or it gets a little foggy or it gets a little tired or something. There's some strategy that we have. Um, and then to be very, very gentle with that. But just feel the edge. Um, you know, it's good to know. Good to know about that. And I have total faith that um, just touching those edges gently now and then slowly softens them. That's how it's been for me. Um, slowly, slowly working into the areas such that the teachings can be let in fully. That's what they were meant to do. So you might consider whether you have some kind of inspiration or intention around the role of the practice in your life. You know, to what degree is this something for my whole life? I'm somewhat inspired by this because we're just about to start the Eightfold Path program, which is the, the elements of the Eightfold Path end up covering our whole life. They cover how we think, how we behave, and how we meditate. Um, that's pretty much a lot. And it's meant to be that way. It's meant to touch all aspects of our lives. So it's good to know what our intention is in that area because it actually does affect the result that we experience. You get different results depending how you take things in. So maybe I'll just read the five again. The Dhamma is the foundation. All the teachings are practices. Nothing is left out. All teachings can be experienced here and now. And the teachings are to be led in fully. One time a student came to Suzuki Roshi, who was a famous Zen teacher of the last century, and said to him, if I do these practices, will I become enlightened? It's a fair question. And Suzuki Roshi thought for a little while and then said, if your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. It's a great answer. If your practice is sincere, it's almost as good. It's a great answer. So some food for thought this evening, but maybe better some food for practice. <laughs> Thank you. Does anybody have any questions or, or comments? Yeah. 
Gregory Kramer. Or any other questions about your practice? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.